It's good to be with you. Man, oh man, it's officially like summer, July. There's two, two giveaways to that. Uh, the first is the heat. It's, uh, it's, it's happening again. And the second is the, the funny dynamics of Sundays. Uh, one Sunday, everyone's in town. The next Sunday, everyone's on vacation. Can I just encourage you this summer? Um, yeah, you too, man. <laughs> Everybody. Um, can I just encourage you? Please make some intentional time, set some intentional time to like retreat, to like, to like give yourself over to deep spiritual rest. One of the things that I think, um, you don't need me to tell you that. I think, I think our culture is really good at like vacationing. Um, the, pr- the problem can be is sometimes we leave Jesus at home and he's the source of the rest that our soul desperately needs. Fill your, your view with beauty and nature and wonder and loved ones and sleep and food and rest. Like In the same way we want to get in the rhythm of, of uh, Sabbathing every week where we give ourselves over to intentionally ceasing. Like I think it's really healthy and really good for your household to give yourself over to these regular rhythms of intentional rest. But I just wanna, I just wanna as, your, as your friend, and some, most of you as your pastor, like, I just wanna encourage you, don't leave Jesus at home. Like, his spirit is with you. He is the, the greatest source of rest that any of us could ever glean from, uh, drink from, engage in. Like, we need him, okay? So, all that being said, I wanna dive in this morning uh, today, we're actually going to conclude our priesthood series uh, for, this is, I think, the 16th week. So for months now, we've been going through this series uh, called Priesthood, and it's really, it's revolved around this idea of restoring our priestly identity. Um, what priests are is they're, they're people, they're men and they're women that have oriented their entire life around ministering to God. Um, when I say minister to God, I mean, I mean blessing him. I mean, I mean offering themselves to him. I mean, I mean like prayer. I mean worship. I mean all of life oriented around him as God, as though he is God, as, he, as though he is the center of all things. But priests, they orient their whole life around, around blessing God, not to get something from him, not transactionally, but just because he's worthy. Priests have had an encounter. They've had a. They've they've beheld. We've talked a lot about beholding in this series, giving our attention to the, the our, our full undivided attention to God. Because when we see Him clearly, everything changes. I mean, everything. And and the, and the beautiful reality that we become like that with which we behold, not just in our spirituality and our Christianity and our discipleship, but in every area of life. And so we've been really diving into this concept that priesthood is it's part of our identity as Christians. It's not just things we do. And I know you guys have heard me say this 16 times at least, right? And more, maybe more, but it's not just what we do. It's part of who we are. It's part of who we were created to be, is to be a person whose whole life is oriented around worship, around blessing God just because He's worthy, and not in isolation, although we do it, you know, one-on-one time, devotion time with the Lord, absolutely, but a priesthood. Priesthood is a collective, right? It's, it's, it's us together, worshiping God together, orienting our whole lives around that. And so the question that I kind of have 
for myself, for us as a church, kind of as we're, as we're concluding this series, is, is this going to be just kind of like, cool, we, 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 we studied that topic and now we're moving on to the next thing? Or are we actually going to step into our priestly identity as a community? Because I'll be honest with you, like, I, I just, I have zero desire to study just for the sake of study. Like if it doesn't permeate my person, if it doesn't, if it, if it doesn't, if that information doesn't bring about transformation in my life, what are we doing? And so my question for us is: Will we continue to step more and more into our priestly identity, or will we give in to the lure of consumer Christianity, which is like a real thing? And I'm going to get kind of intense today. I feel it bubbling up in me, but it's, it's demonic. Because what consumer Christianity is, is it's ultimately the, the perspective that this is for me. Or this is for my family. I'm going to talk kind of intense for just a second, but hear my heart before you react. This is not primarily for you. This is not primarily for your family. This is primarily for him. And and don't misunderstand what I'm saying. This is primarily for him. But here's here's the thing. When human beings, when they orient their life around God at the center, they thrive. (laughs) So the outcome of us orienting our entire life going, this is all for him because he's worthy, we thrive as a result of that. So do we benefit from living life as priests? Absolutely we benefit from it. But this reality, this, the, the Christian life, being a disciple of Jesus, being a, a priesthood, this is not primarily for you or for me or for our kids. It's primarily for him. And the beautiful reality is that a human being thrives when they live that way. So we benefit tremendously. But there's a lure. There's a lure in culture that especially in the West, to make Christianity about you. To make Christianity about me getting my needs met instead of it being about worship. And here's the catch. It's always about worship. The question is, what's the God, who the God is that we're worshiping? And so there's a danger here. So you're gonna consistently, I'm gonna consistently put this in front of you because I love you and I need to say it and preach it so that I am under the fear of God in my own life that I don't step into that as well. You with me? Humans thrive when God's at the center of their lives. All right? We've talked about beholding him, the importance of beholding him. Uh, Recently, I I shared this already. Many of you guys know this, but recently a bunch of the guys in the church went on a camping trip. And it was a really beautiful time, man. Like, we got to be up in the eastern Sierras around Mammoth, five or six hours away. It was beautiful. The weather was good except for the rain and the mosquitoes. Uh, But it really was a wonderful time. And one of the agendas for the trip was many of the guys uh, enjoy fishing. So we would go fishing and different things about fishing. If you've ever been fishing, you know, like, it can, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's fun, especially when you catch fish, especially when you catch fish. Now, here's the thing. I didn't catch any fish on this trip. Um, Kevin caught fish. Mark caught fish. Uh, Chris isn't here, but Chris caught plenty of fish. Herrick, did you catch fish? You, yeah, we, we have, yeah. Sorry, man. You and me both. We're in it together. We, we, uh, we did not have any luck catching fish, although I really enjoy fishing. Uh, but here's the thing. Like, when it comes to fishing, 
you, you have to go where the fish are, right? <clears throat> and I think that's one of the reasons why I didn't catch any fish was because the places that I would go, there wasn't any fish. But I know that's a silly concept, but hear me. Like, you wouldn't go to your neighbor's, like, swimming pool and drop a line in and call that fishing. It might look like it's fishing. You have all the elements. You get the pole, you get the bait, you get the line, you get the body of water. But you've got to go to where the fish are present. If you want to fish, a fish must be present. And so here's my, here's what I want to use that as an illustration for something, okay? Fishing begins with the pursuit of a fish's presence. Hear me, I'm talking about priesthood, right? Living as a priest, it begins with the pursuit of God's presence. It's an inseparable ingredient to this whole concept of priesthood. The presence of that with which we ascribe ultimate worth to, a person, almighty God. Priesting without God's presence is like fishing without a fish's presence. And so today, we're gonna conclude this series on priesthood talking about prioritizing God's presence. It's absolutely essential, okay? If you have your Bible, go ahead and grab it. We're gonna be in 2 Samuel chapter six. We're going Old Testament on you. Buckle up. We're gonna read an entire chapter of scripture this morning. We're gonna go through it. I'm gonna talk a little bit. We're gonna read a little bit. We're gonna work through this whole thing, but there's the challenge for me, just to be candid with you, the challenge for me with this chapter is that there's so much gold, you could, you could pull 10 messages out of this. So I'm gonna try not to do that. I'm gonna try to stay on, kind of on course, uh, but no guarantees. We'll see what happens. Second Samuel chapter six. Uh, let me pray for us before we read God's word and just like really prepare our hearts. So will you pray with me? Father, I'm reminded of just the unbelievable amount of grace on our lives. The fact that the world hasn't utterly and completely and fully spiraled out of, spiraled out of control and, and into total destruction and just like exploded is only a result of your intervening grace. And not just the big things, like even right now, I'm like, thank you for air conditioning. Thank you that we get to be in your presence because of Jesus. Holy Spirit, I ask you, help us to behold Jesus. Teach us about your presence. Thank you that you're ever-present. You're ever present. And there's so many things in our lives that would try to keep us from engaging with your presence at all times. And there's a lot of things in life that are successful at doing just that. And I ask you right now, by the power of your spirit, that you would eliminate all that, if at least for the rest of this gathering, if not more. 
so that we could step more and more into our priestly identity and thrive as human beings. Help us, Holy Spirit, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Okay, so just to kind of bring you up to speed here, 2 Samuel chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 1, but you kind of need to know what's happened before this, right? Uh, David has officially been named king, okay? When he was a young boy, it was prophesied that he was going to be king, right? He's anointed, the whole thing. He has just stepped into this years later, okay? So David, David he's, he's officially been made king, and, the, and what he does is he goes and secures the city of Jerusalem, also known as the city of David, well, fun fact, Bible trivia, whenever you read the city of David, it's Jerusalem, okay? God's holy city. So he goes and secures the city of Jerusalem, and then he gets to work as king, okay? Guess what his first priority is going to be? What are we talking about today? Perfect, you got, I'm doing a great job. We're talking about God's presence, God's presence and how vital it is for, for the life of the priesthood, okay? So, Guess what his first agenda is? Guess what it involves? God's presence. Thank you. Cool. God's presence. So this is what David's going to do right when he assumes the throne. He secures the city and he's like, oh, dude, first priority, number one, God's presence. Let's read about it. Uh, Starting in verse one. David again assembled all the fit young men in Israel, 30,000 of them. He and all his troops set out to bring the Ark of God, underline Ark of God, from Baal Judah. The Ark bears the name, that's Yahweh, God's name, right? The name of the Lord of armies who is enthroned, underline enthroned, between the cherubim. Pause. I'm gonna read, talk, read, talk. Okay, you got, most of you will know this, but just for some review, you gotta know what the ark is, okay? Will you, will you guys throw that slide up, the picture? Um, it should be in there. Okay, so this is a artistic rendering of the ark, all right? These guys look stoked out of their mind, don't they? <clears throat> epic epic uh, uniform, but that box, that large box, that's the ark, okay? Here's what you need to know about the ark. So you have the exodus, right? So the people of God, they've been, you know, they disobey the whole thing. And then they go, they go into slavery, right? They're in, they're in Egypt, they're in slavery. God, God, the exodus happens, right? He raises up Moses to deliver them out of slavery in Egypt, right? So after that takes place, God tells the Israelites, the people of God, to build a big box where his presence would dwell. All right, and he gave very specific instructions, okay? He said that box, the ark, was to be placed inside the tabernacle, which was basically like a mobile version, a tent version of what would become the temple, which is the sanctuary. It's the place where, where the priests would come, the presence of God was, and they would minister to God. They would bless God. They would worship God the same way that we're talking about, yet in a different way, but the same heartbeat, okay? So very specific instructions, he said there were some things that would need to, it needed to be placed inside the tabernacle, right? The Holy of Holies, the most holy place. But this box, it contained three things. Uh, you Bible nerds in the room, let's have some Bible trivia. Anybody know what those three things that God said to place inside the ark were? No judgment if you don't. You're going to learn it today. Ten, yeah, the stone tablets. There's two stone tablets of the Ten Commandments. That's one. What else? Yes, jar of manna. Manna was the, 
the supernatural, miraculous food that fell from heaven while the Israelites were in the desert, wandering in the wilderness. What's the third one? This is the one. You know, good job. I was like, did she Google? Okay, yeah, so Aaron's staff. Good job, Sienna. Um, Aaron's staff. So listen, the jar of manna. It's not just that, oh, cool, that happened. It, it, God, you're a physical being and you're a spiritual being. There's so many implications to the things that happen and the way that you live and how it, how it influences the spiritual realm and your physical body. All this is interconnected. God's a creator. He's an artist. He did all this, right? So listen, the jar of manna, it symbolized God's provision. That, they, that, that, that people, his, people would remember this like, He provided for us in miraculous ways. The stone tablets, it it signified God's law. And that might sound like, oh, the law. His ways, he's the king. Here's how you can flourish in the truest kingdom that there is. Right? God's law. And Aaron's staff, it signified God's power. He could do anything. Now, the cherubim, what those were was they're basically these angelic beings, right? They're on top of the ark there. So the ark is where God's presence dwelt. Now, if you noticed it in the story, David's going to retrieve the ark from somewhere. Where was the ark? Again, some context for you really quickly. Earlier in 1 Samuel chapter 5, Israel, right there, as they're known to do, they disobey God in some pretty profound ways. So they're disobedient to God, and what happens is they go into battle against the Philistines. So war, like get the picture in your mind. These are real people. They're fighting a real battle, right? They go into battle against the Philistines, and they lose, right? Disobey God, go into the battle, lose against the Philistines. They don't just lose the battle, they lose the ark. And what's the, what's the ark symbolize? Not symbolize, what is actually, it's God's presence. Get the picture, God's presence. They lose the battle and they lose the ark to the Philistines. So the Philistines take it, right? And they have it in their possession. (laughs) I love the personality of God. God starts sending all these plagues on the Philistines, right? They get messed up. All these bunch of people die. So they're like, we got to get this thing out of here. Like everyone's dying. Like get it out of here. So they get rid of the ark and ultimately it ends up in the possession of a guy named Abinadab. Abinadab. Great name. Abinadab has the ark for like something like 20 years. Now, that's where David's going to retrieve it from. Did you notice in verse two, I had you underline it, it says the word enthroned. Huh. So listen, here's what you gotta know about the ark before we get going with this. Not only is the ark where God's presence dwelt, his manifest presence Not only is the ark where God's presence dwelt, the ark is God's throne. So get the picture in your mind. His presence, his throne. Who sits on the throne? A king, right? Picture it in your mind. God's presence, God's throne. That's the ark. It's not just a box. Let's keep reading verse 3. So they, the Israelites, David, his whole crew, the people of God, they set the ark of God on a new cart. Go ahead and underline cart. And transported it from Abinadab's house, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the cart. There it is again, underline cart. 
and brought it with the ark of God from Abinadab's house on the hill. Ahio walked in front of the ark. Pause again. Okay, that word cart might, if you've studied this before, you know where I'm going, but if you, if you, if you, if you haven't, your first reading of this, it doesn't, it doesn't do anything to you. The people of God reading this thousands of years ago, they would have gone, oh! they would have like gasped. Now, <clears throat> throw that picture back up if you guys would, of the, of the ark. You guys see a cart in this picture? There's a reason you don't see a cart in this picture. You see, they're carrying it with these poles, right? God gave them specific instructions on how to transport the ark. The reason they were using a cart was for convenience. And like I said, this was like a big no-no, okay? Because God gave specific instructions on how to transport the ark, like this. Um, when I was growing up, my parents worked really hard. Um, like both outside of the home, inside the home. Pops worked long hours. They both commuted. They, they made some serious sacrifices for our family. It's beautiful. Um, one of the things that I look back on, especially with my mom, was how she was able to serve our family as much as she did in like a 24-hour span of time. Like I just find myself, I'm always running out of time. There's not a never, never enough time. I mean, she was served us like crazy. But as I got older, um, obviously she can't like do my laundry when I'm, you know, forever. And so I remember her like going, you need to start doing your own laundry, dude. I'm like, okay, cool. So she starts teaching me how to do laundry. And there's, you know, the whole thing. And I was like, ah, you could just do it, mom. You're better at it. Like, it's easier. But so she starts teaching me how to do laundry. Read the tag. The tag will tell you how to care for this garment and make sure you sort the colors. Uh, when I was in high school, my, the, the school that I went to, <clears throat> our main color as a school was red. Uh, I played sports, I was in ASB, so needless to say, I had a bunch of red clothes. Like all the sports gear, like the red ASB hoodie, all the thing, I had a lot of red clothes. More than I think the average person has a lot of red clothes, okay? And I remember more than one time going like, okay, my mom has taught me how to do laundry. I'm doing my laundry now. And I would just see a pile of clothes in my room that were all red, right, seemingly. And I'd just grab the pile, throw it into the washer, start it, and I didn't sort the colors. I didn't make sure that there wasn't other things in there. And so you guys, all of you done laundry, you know where I'm going with the story. Multiple, multiple white T-shirts, multiple white socks are now pink right? Because it was just more convenient to grab the whole pile, throw it in there, than to actually take the time to separate everything to make sure that all the colors were alike. What I did was I was, I, I chose convenience over obedience. And it didn't really turn out well. I had pink clothes. You see, choosing convenience over obedience, it, it, it never ends well. I know that sounds hyperbolic, but I believe it's true. And maybe like with silly, stupid things like laundry, it's like, okay, whatever. But like, what about bigger things? What about when the stakes are a little bit higher? Choosing convenience over obedience. When it came to transporting the ark, 
the people of God chose convenience over obedience. And this isn't like the point of my message, but I think it's important to talk about. Like, can I just lovingly caution you? Avoid choosing convenience over obedience in your life. It it will only hurt you. Let's keep reading. Verse five, okay, right? So get the picture. They're transporting the ark to Jerusalem. Verse five, David and the whole house of Israel were dancing before the Lord with all kinds of firwood instruments and lyres and harps and tambourines and sistrums and cymbals. So think like a massive parade. They are the zeal, the passion, the dare I say praise. We talked about this before, but, but there's, there's seven Hebrew words for praise that is more than just like singing. It definitely involves singing. It definitely involves prayers from the lips, but it also, there's, there's words that are translated praise that mean dance and move your body and kneel and there's, there's seven different ones. There, this is a praise parade, guys. I want you to get this picture. This is a praise parade. A lot of zeal. Good, it's good. There's good intention. Verse six. When they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah reached out and t- reached out to the ark of God and took hold of it. Underline took hold of it because the oxen had stumbled. Pause for just a moment. Remember, what was the ark all about? Two things. I hope that you're getting this by now. God's presence and his throne. That's what the ark was. God's presence, God's throne. This is a quick side note, but I think it's important. I think this is the spirit. It says it was a took hold of it. What's interesting is that like, that's not just unique to this translation. That's like most of the translations say he took hold of it. So hear me. In a subtle way, he took hold of God's throne. This is, again, this is not the point of my message, but it's, I think it's important. I'm reading this passage this week, and I've read this, I've read this chapter dozens of times. I've preached this passage in, I think, both prior church plants. So I've read it. It's like you ever get to a pa- you ever get to a chapter in the Bible where you're like, ah, oh, I've read this before. I kind of know. Move on to the next one. I've read this before. As I'm reading it, in a subtle way, he took hold of God's throne. As I'm reading this, God said to me, "So do you." And I was like, "Oh man!" In subtle ways, you, you take hold of my throne. Listen, can we, can we be people who never stop devouring God's word? One of the reasons why it's such a profoundly important element of our life is that God will speak to you personally through his word. Is that the, the proper way to exegete this passage? Probably not. But good God Almighty, the fear of the Lord came upon me. And then the next thing I knew, gratitude came upon me for his grace and his mercy and his love because the gospel's true. Friend, in your life, you ever take a hold of God's throne? Like even in really subtle ways. All right, let's keep going. Verse seven. 
this is where it gets intense. Then the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah, and God struck him dead on the spot for his irreverence. Underline irreverence. And he died there next to the ark of God. David was angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. So he named that place outburst against Uzzah, as it is today. Okay, pause again. Get the picture here. The people of God are, the praise parade is firing. It's like it's operating on all cylinders. Like it's going, right? People are going off. Like they're ribbon dancing on the side. They're doing the prophetic painting on the stage. The band is kicking it in. Like it's like, dude, it's better than any worship concert you've ever been to in your life. They're going for it, right? They're bringing the, the, the ark, God's presence, his throne. They're bringing it back to the city. And in the process, they choose convenience over obedience. And then Uzzah touches the ark and God kills him. And David's upset. The question is, at who? Is he upset at Uzzah? Is he upset at God? I think most people think David's upset at God. No. David's upset with himself. He's upset with himself. See, God gave specific instructions about how to handle the ark to avoid situations just like this. David knew all about these instructions. All of the people knew all about these instructions. So did Uzzah. This is not like hidden knowledge in the people of God, like, oh, only the higher-ups know it. And like, no, 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 everybody knows this stuff. Numbers chapter four, God tells Israel, don't ever touch the ark. Exodus 25, God tells Israel, the ark is to be carried only. That, like, no carts, no convenience. He even gives them specific instructions on who can carry the ark and how to carry it. This is one of those passages in the Bible that freaks people out because they're like, I thought God was loving. What it, who is this guy? I mean, the oxen stumbled and it was a touched, he took hold of the ark and boy, he doesn't deserve death. The reason why sometimes we respond that way is because we don't see sin as being that big of a deal. We don't see rejecting God and his ways as really that big of a deal, unless it's like murder or like kidnapping or like these really intense sins. Hear me. Satan is working overtime to distort your view of God, friend. And sometimes he's effective. God's not an ogre. God's commands aren't to be harsh or to be controlling. They're they're to protect his people every single time. When he gives you a command, it's for your protection. Kind of my next main point here is that God's holy presence is dangerous for sinful people. But make no mistake, God is passionate in his desire to be with his people. That's literally like, if you read the Bible, it's God 
and is perfectly present with his people, sin happens, and then it's the restoration project for God to be present with his people again. And he goes to really great lengths to make that happen, right? He institutes these commands so that his holy presence doesn't obliterate his people. He wants to be present with them, but he doesn't want his, his holy, pure, righteous presence to like, obliterate them. Not because he's bad, but because he's so good. We're, we're the ones that aren't so good. Can I just ask you a question? I fear God in my life right now, dude, for real. Like his presence, holy crap. In your life, where are you touching the ark? Like, where are you violating God's commands? Even if they don't seem like a big deal to you. Hear me, friends. God doesn't give commands to control us or harm us. He gives us command to, commands to protect us from ourselves. In the same way that a loving father gives commands to his children, do not run in the street. Not because he's trying to control them. Not because he just wants to be harsh. And not because he's holding anything good back from them. But to protect them. Every command. Where in your life are you touching the ark, man? Where in your life are you violating God's way in favor of your way? I, I, I know best. I know best. Maybe it's something as simple as just, just choosing convenience over obedience. Subtle things. Or maybe it's something bigger, friend. God's holy presence is dangerous for sinful people. Let's keep reading verse nine. We're getting there. David feared the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? Underline that one. Keep that in your back pocket. We're gonna come back to that. How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? Verse 10, so he was not willing to bring the ark of the Lord to the city of David. Instead, he diverted it to the house of Obed-Edom of Gath. Underline that, we'll come back to him. Verse 11, the ark of the Lord remained in Obed-Edom's house three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and his whole family. Pause again. So, So David, he desires God's presence, but now he's afraid. Right now, there's some kind of uncertainty going on here. Like, whoa, man. Okay, here's what's wild about this. Again, first glance, you might not see this. Obed-Edom, this guy's a Gentile. That means he's not a Jew. He's not one of God's chosen people, right? And yet, the ark wasn't dangerous for him. This, This chapter will mess you up. But what I love about it is it just causes you to dive in a little bit deeper. This guy's not a Jew, yet the ark wasn't dangerous for him. In fact, it says God's presence, the ark, brought blessing to this guy's entire household. Here's my next point. God's presence is a blessing to households who host him. God's presence is a blessing to households who host him. Hear me, any household. 
I don't care what you've done. I don't care what's been done to you. I don't care how you were raised, whether you were raised in the church, outside the church, Madagascar, uh, Missouri, whatever. Any household. Friends, do you know what your household needs more than anything? More than order, although that's good. More than cleanliness, although that's good. What your household needs more than anything is to host God's presence. But you might be like, well, what does that look like? That sounds cool. Yeah, great. What does that look like practically? Remember, what's the ark, right? It's where God's presence dwelt and what else? What was it? His throne. It was God's throne. Friends, the king is present where the king presides. How do you host God's presence in your household? The king is present where the king presides. So the question, this begs the question, is God the king of your home? Is God the king of your home? God's presence is a blessing to households who host him. Here's the thing. Same thing applies to churches. I'm going to try not to just lose it talking about this right now. The presence of God is a blessing to churches who host him. Who desire him. Who, who, who want his rule and his reign. Who go like, I want your ways. Instead of the way things we've all, the old wineskin, the ways that we've always done, just tradition. Without devotion. I think the ache and the cry of my heart is that for as long as God has us all together in this season, like, God, please make us a church that hosts your presence, that desires your rule and your reign, that we wouldn't be so caught up in, like, preferences or programs or the consumer thing, but we'd be like, we just want him. We just want his presence. This is all for him. He's the point. If he's not the point, this has become something else. God's presence is a blessing to churches who host him. Hear me, same thing applies to cities, regions, nations even. Could you imagine just a city, just an entire city that hosted God's presence? Think about the implications for a second. I don't have time. Let's keep, sorry, let's keep going. I told you I was gonna do this. I'm sorry, guys. The verse 12. It was reported to King David, the Lord has blessed Obed-Edom's family and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. David's gonna get jealous. So David went and had the ark of God brought up from Obed-Edom's house to the city of David, that's Jerusalem, right, with rejoicing. When those carrying the ark of the Lord, underline carrying, oh, some things are changing now. When those carrying the ark of the Lord advanced six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened calf, verse 14. David was dancing, not just like dancing. It says he was dancing with all his might. 
Has anybody in the room, have you ever danced with all of your might? Would somebody be willing to show us what that looks like right now? I'm looking at you, Trenton. <laughs> no, but like, get this picture. <laughs> She's good. She's, you're good, Mateo. You're good. I know you got moves, girl. You don't need to show it. Okay. But like, David, get the picture. David's dancing with all of his might before the Lord, and it says he's wearing a linen ephod. Underline that. Verse 15. He and the whole house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of a trumpet. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Saul's daughter, I think it's pronounced Michael, but we're just going to say it, Michael. Maybe it's Michal. That's Saul's daughter. He was the previous king, right? Also David's wife. Looked down from the window. This is like something out of a Disney cartoon. Looked down from the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And it says, and she despised him in her heart. Pause again. I want you to notice a handful of things here. Now they're carrying the ark. Right? Now they're practicing obedience. So David, he strikes up the band again. He gets the praise parade rolling again. And this time he's doing it God's way. And then something absolutely incredible happens. Did you catch it? You remember we, we had you come back to in verse nine, remember David's burning question, right? How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? How can God's holy presence come to me? Right, it's, it's dangerous for sinful people. We talked about this, right? How can it ever come to me? And the answer's right there. Can you see it? It's spectacular. It says, every six steps an animal was sacrificed. In Leviticus, which might be the most underrated book in the Bible, in Leviticus, God instructed the people on how to make these sacrifices. And you would basically do kind of two things. The first thing that you would do is you would, you would place your hand on the animal to identify yourself with it. And then it would, it would be killed and it would be completely destroyed. It was an acknowledgement that I should be destroyed in the presence of God. But instead, someone else will be killed and destroyed in my place. Remember, God's holy presence is dangerous for sinful people. Friends, the only way for a sinful person to come into the presence of God is through the sacrifice of another. Now, doesn't that sound familiar? Jesus, can I just talk about Jesus for a moment? Jesus, oh. The only way for a sinful person to be in the presence of a holy God is through the sacrifice of another. That's my Jesus. That's your Jesus. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and who makes away for broken, sinful people like me 
to be embraced in the presence of Almighty God. Not just tastes of it now, but the fullness of it forever. I was talking with Herrick this morning. I'm going to steal a Herrick burger line. He was talking about when we lose our keys, you know, and how we like, we lose our keys. Gosh, no, I can't get in my car. I can't get in my house. Like, I, I, I lost my access. Jesus is the key. He's the key to the presence of God. Now, it also says David was wearing a linen ephod. Okay, linen ephod was basically priestly garment. It was a priestly garment. So David, this is wild. David assumes the role of a priest. What do priests do? We've been talking about this for 16 weeks. Priests, they orient their whole life around ministering to God, blessing God just because he's worthy, bringing him pleasure. Like I'm going to do stuff just because I want to bring you pleasure, not because I'm trying to get a present. So the king of Israel, David, assumes the role of a priest. Why? Let's keep reading. Verse verse 17. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent David had pitched for it. Then David offered burnt offerings and fellowship offerings in the Lord's presence. He's operating like a priest, right? So what's happening here, David's reinstalling the worship center. He's reinstalling the sanctuary, the dwelling place of God. It wasn't at the center of the city of the people of God. He's reinstalling the worship center at the center of God, or at the center of the city, the sanctuary. He's putting God's presence back at the center for the rest of the people of God. You get in the picture here. Let's keep going. Verse 18. When David had finished offering the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of armies. Don't forget, there's a heavenly army. Verse 19, then he distributed a loaf of bread, a date cake, and a raisin cake to each one in the entire Israelite community, both men and women. Then all the people went home. Verse 20, when David returned home to bless his household now, so he's blessing his, and now he's going to bless his household. Saul's daughter, his wife, Michael, came out to meet him. Check out what she says. How the king of Israel honored himself today. Sarcasm. She said, he exposed himself today in the sight of the slave girls of his subjects like a vulgar person would expose himself. Pause for again, for just a second. Oftentimes, this passage gets the linen ephod piece. It gets teachers like, David was so caught up in worship. He was in his underwear and he didn't care. <laughs> like the linen ephod is like, it's, an under, it's a priestly undergarment. That's not the point. It's not about like David being immodest because he's so caught up in worship. He clearly doesn't have fear of man. He clearly prioritizes bringing and offering God praise no matter what he looks like, whether he looks like a fool or not. But his wife basically says, King David, you look like a fool. You certainly didn't look like a king. Check out David's response. Verse 21. David replied to Michael, It was before the Lord, 
underline that before the Lord, (laughs) who chose me over your father and his whole family to appoint me ruler over the Lord's people, Israel. Check out my resume. And again, the resume wasn't what David did. He didn't say, I've done all these, I just, I slayed Goliath. He goes, God chose me. Here's my identity in the Lord, not my performance. And this is what he says, I will dance before the Lord. Verse 22, and I will dishonor myself, underline that, and humble myself, underline that, even more. However, by the slave girls you spoke about, I will be honored. And Saul's daughter, Michael, had no child to the day of her death. Whoa. In other words, what David replies to her with is, I'm not the true king. The true king is the one seated on the throne in the sanctuary over there. You know that ark? The throne of God? That's, that's the real king. The real king. I don't have time, but like if you go and read the, there's a cross reference, there's another account of this in 1 Chronicles. David ends up hiring thousands of musicians and singers to minister to God in the sanctuary day and night. Why would somebody do that? Like imagine if we were like, hey guys, we're gonna take 60% of our church budget and we're just gonna hire singers and musicians that are filled with the spirit of God to minister to God in the prayer room night and day. How many of you would be like, I'm out. This is irresponsible. These elders don't know how to manage finances. We're done. King David assumed the role of a priest because God is Israel's true king. His wife's like, God, you look like a fool. You don't look like a king. He goes, I'll dishonor myself and humble myself even more. The true king's over there. He leverages his governing authority to make sure everybody knows who the true king is. I love that about David. My final point for us. Priests know the true king and they prioritize his presence. Priests know who the true king is and they prioritize his presence. Guys, for months we've been talking about restoring our priestly identity. We've been talking about like orienting all of our gatherings and all of our life around ministering to him. Offering him praise, blessing him, right? Putting God in his rightful place at the center of our worship, which is not just Sundays. It's not just the prayer room. It's not just Lord's Supper gatherings. Every single area of our life, the lordship, the rule, the reign, the kingdom of God, the true king. We talked about like old wineskins, like old ways they try to pull you back. And God's like, no, we, we need some, you need this. You, the reason they're called old wineskins is because they're old. The ways of the world have been operating for so long that they become old and they don't actually work. It's not about just doing something new for the sake of doing something new. But friends, this is our pursuit. This is our pursuit. His presence above all else. Him. His presence over programming. <laughs> we don't offer programs. It's not, we're, not a, we're not a business. His presence. 
You guys with me? How much time do we have? Okay. I'm going to talk a little bit longer because I think it's important. I recently got into baking bread a couple years ago. Um, Andrea hooked me up with a starter. I was very much um, influenced by the work of Harrison Boyd. <laughs> but hear me, like I started baking bread and I learned a lot about, um, learned a lot just about myself and different things. But here's the thing about bread. You gotta have a rising agent, right? <clears throat> and the best bread uses like a natural wild yeast from the region that you're in and it, it permeates your, your dough and causes it to rise. You need a rising agent if you're gonna bake good bread. And here's the thing about that yeast, that rising agent. Eventually, just a, even a little bit of yeast, it spreads through the entire dough and it causes that dough to rise. Herrick and I and the staff and the leaders have been like, hey guys, come join us in the prayer room. Come join us in the prayer room. Do you know what the prayer room is? It's yeast for our church. It's a sanctuary. It, it, it's consecrated space. Set aside space. Nothing else happens in the prayer room besides offerings to God. Like 24-7. We don't have meetings in there. It's like, okay, well, let's, let's flip this into a meeting space. No, 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 no. that's consecrated space. It's a line item on our budget every month. It's a sanctuary where a priesthood ministers to God in his presence. Now, the reason I tell you that that's yeast for our church is because what does yeast do? It spreads. It spreads. Eventually, it's going to spread more and more. A priesthood ministering to the Lord because he's worthy and we love him and he's worth it. Over time, it's going to infiltrate into this room more and more and more and more and more and more. You guys ever wonder why some Sundays you're like, dude, the presence of the Lord was so thick and tangible in the room. And sometimes you're like, I'm getting hungry. I think I want tacos. The reason for that careful. I'll say this. The reason for that is the collective mindset in the room. What is this for? Oh, the Sundays when the majority of the room is like, I'm here for him. I don't care what songs we sing. I don't even care what Tom or Herrick or somebody else talks about. I just want to bless him. It goes off. God can't help himself. He comes where he's wanted. The reason why I said the prayer room is yeast for our church is eventually that priesthood, that, 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 that priestly identity that, that, that a few operated, it starts to eventually seep into every area of the whole entire loaf. Sundays, it starts to seep into here. Lord's Supper gatherings, it starts to seep into there. Dare I say your households. The prayer room's on pause, right? Is it? You live in with a bunch of Christians, right? We're in bad shape if our priestly identity is dependent on the prayer room. Is it a gift? Absolutely. Is it an asset? Absolutely. Is it a tool? 100%. But what if your household was a consecrated space? What if your entire, what if your body actually was the sanctuary that the scriptures say it is? 
to where you were engaging in priestly ministry unto the Lord 24 hours a day, seven days a week, no matter what you give your hands, mind, thoughts, words to. That's where this thing's heading. Either unto, like we see more and more breakthrough in the kingdom of God advancing on the earth, or I die and I get to go experience the fullness of it. But that's where this thing is heading. All right, I've talked way too long. Band, will you guys come up? You guys, you guys with me, you okay? August 15th, prayer room resumes. I cannot wait. I'm so, I, I've missed this so much, but it's important. Strategic breaks, strategic retreats for the further future advancements, really important. That's what the summer is for. Um, here's my prayer. My prayer is that our children uh, would essentially be Levites. And when I say children, I don't mean just like the five-year-olds. I mean like you can have grown children. Our children would be Levites. If you're not familiar with Levites, what they were is they were the, one of the tribes under Levi, right? So a family, right? An, an extended family tree, a family line. The Levites, they were uh, the priests. The priestly line. They were the priesthood. And they inherited it from their mom and dad. Each generation. They would step into the priesthood. That's my prayer. My prayer is that our children would step into the family, I don't want to use the word business because it's not appropriate, the family rhythms, the family values, and not like my heritage, like not that, like the kingdom of God. That they wouldn't be like stepping into, not religion, not tradition, I'm talking about devotion, expressed as, an, as a priest, someone who, whose identity is, I am a priest and I am part of a priesthood. My life is oriented around ministering to the Lord, blessing him, bringing him pleasure just because he's worthy. And I had this thought this week where I'm like, man, if I, I desperately want that for our kids. If they're gonna inherit that, we have to be about it. We can't leave them something that isn't ours. You with me in that? You gotta have enough of something to pass down. Here's one of the cool things. David wasn't a Levite. David was king. And yet he still assumed the role of a priest. And the question for our church is will we Will we assume the role of priests? Or will this be a cute 16-week season, a 16-week sermon series that helped us kind of understand more of the thread of the Bible? Man, I hope, <laughs> I hope we do. If we do, it's gonna require a radical reorientation. It's gonna require prioritizing God's presence and prioritizing God's throne. It's gonna require the ark. But hear me, that's where we're going. That's where we're headed. I'm, Herrick and I both are convinced that this is what the Lord wants for us. Will it be convenient? Jury's out. But we're gonna choose obedience over convenience. All right, here's what I wanna do. 
I want to pray for us. And then we're going to respond. But I think there's more. I think God wants to do some ministry this morning. Let's pray. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we invite you now. We know that you're present with us. You've been present with us this whole morning. I pray right now for two things. I pray for conviction and freedom. Conviction and freedom, Holy Spirit. Convict us in the ways that we're touching the ark, in the ways that we're minimizing sin, in the ways that we're not enjoying the pleasure of forgiveness and grace and mercy that brings fullness of joy. It's your presence. Would you convict us in a beautiful way? And ultimately, I pray the gospel of Jesus over every single one of us, that it would produce freedom, freedom to say yes to you instead of saying, no, we're not, not right now. I'm, I'm, I'm busy. I got to do other things, Lord. Would you make us a people that prioritize your presence in our hearts, in our minds, in our households, in our lives? Good God here on Sunday, of course, but more than that. Father, I'm asking you to make us a priesthood. I'm asking you to purify a people for your own possession. I feel like the Spirit wants some of us in the room to actually take action. So here's what I want you to do. If you're in a space where you're recognizing like a, des- a deeper desire to orient your entire life around God's presence and, and, and operating as a priesthood, I'm gonna ask you to just stand to your feet. There's no judgment happening in the room. Just stand to your feet so I can pray over you. If you're not in a space to do that, don't do it. You're not, you're not standing before me. You're standing before Almighty God. Yes. Father, I pray for every single one of your children that acted in faith by by demonstrated their trust and their desire and their hunger for more of you and your your lordship and your your kingdom in their life. I pray those that stood to their feet as a demonstration of taking action, acting in faith, I pray right now that your spirit would come upon them. Fill their heart with peace. Chosen, beloved, adopted, rescued, redeemed, forgiven, delighted in. You really do come where you're wanted. And so, Father, I pray right now in the name of Jesus that your spirit would, your spirit would fill each one of us. That we might behold you as a priesthood, become more like you as disciples as a result of that, and experience more pleasure than anybody else on the planet, no matter what happens to us. Let our lives be a living testimony, a living picture to your worth. Let our, let our worship show the world what you're worth. And let us be people who prioritize your presence because you're the point. It's all about you. It's all for you, Jesus. And so right now, Lord, we're gonna fill this room with praise. Not because it's just kind of what you do on Sundays, not just because it's tradition or because the band has songs they wanna sing in front of us. No, no because you're worthy. You're worthy of our praise. 
Make us a priesthood, we pray. Deliver us from the evil one. We love you, Jesus. Amen.